Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Presbyterian Church in Lakanto, Florida. Our passion is to be a church that enjoys God, experiences His grace, and reflects His love to our community and beyond. To join our local body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at sevenrivers.org. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you're now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Brothers and sisters, this is the very word of God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but not God's word. It stands forever. You may be seated, please. So, I know God's will for your life. I know God's will for your life. If uh, you are a student, I know God's will for your life. If you're a young professional and you're just starting your career, I know God's will for your life. If you're in a midlife crisis, I know God's will for your life. If you're retired, I know God's will for your life. If you're a mom, if you're a dad, if you're a child, if you're a grandparent, if you're married, if you're single, if you're divorced, if you're widowed, if you're any of those things and you are a follower of Jesus, then I know God's will for your life. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 3 says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. God's will for your life is your sanctification. If you're a Christian, then something radical happened to you at some point. According to Romans 6, you died. Your old nature, your old self was crucified with Christ and therefore sin no longer has dominion over you. Paul uses the language of slavery. He says, you are no longer a slave to sin. Sin is not your master anymore to tell you what to do and boss you around. You now belong to God. You have been redeemed from your old way of living. You have been justified and declared righteous in Christ. You have been adopted 
into the Heavenly Father's family. And all of that happened when God opened your eyes and opened your heart, opened your mind to believe the gospel. Right? Uh, the Bible calls it, uh, we call it conversion. The Bible calls it being born again. But after you're converted, then what? After you're born again, then what? Well, then begins the lifelong process known as sanctification. What is sanctification? Sanctification is simply growing as a Christian. That's what it is. Sanctification is growing as a Christian. It's, it comes from the word sanctify, which means to set apart or to make holy. Sanctification is advancing in holiness. Sanctification is being transformed more and more into the image and likeness of Christ. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Anne uh, Lamott wrote, she said, I don't understand the mystery of grace, only that it meets us where we are and does not leave us where it found us. Sanctification. The, the, the Westminster Confession of Faith from which we are basing this sermon series says, they who are effectually called and regenerated, having a new heart and a new spirit created in them, are further sanctified, really and personally, through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection, by his word and spirit dwelling in them. The dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed, and the several lusts thereof are more and more weakened and mortified. They more and more quickened and strengthened in all saving graces to the practice of true holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Sanctification is mandatory for the child of God. Mandatory for the child of God. It's not optional. I like to uh, tease my kids sometimes. I'll tell them, stop growing right? Stop getting so big. And do you know what they say to me? Daddy, I have to grow. I can't help it, right? So what about you? You have to grow if you're a child of God. Are you growing? Are you growing? What, what if you feel stagnant in your growth? What if what if you actually feel like you're regressing in your growth as a Christian? What if you're like the Benjamin Button of sanctification, right? You're going backwards. What do we do? The men who wrote this, uh, this confession uh, about 400 years ago, they're often called the Westminster Divines. The Westminster Divines. It sounds like they had this sanctification thing all figured out, right? Um, but divines just means clergy, they were pastors, um, and, uh, and I could get some, um, some wives of some Seven Rivers Divines up here, and they would burst that bubble pretty quick, uh, uh, that the pastors need sanctification just as much as anyone else. I want to grow, but I need help. Do you want to grow? Do you want to grow? I mean, if you're a Christian, you do. I know you do. Holy Spirit, we need help. How are we going to do it? First, if you're going to grow as a Christian, you have to understand that sanctification is a war. 
War is on everyone's mind right now with uh, Russia and Ukraine. It's heartbreaking. You know, if, our, if our world was perfect, there would be no wars. Right? Isn't that that's what John Len Lennon tried to imagine, right? A perfect world where there would be no wars. But the truth is that there is still sin because of the continued presence of sin in our world. There will always be a war going on somewhere. And the same is also true in sanctification. When you become a Christian, the power of sin is destroyed in your life, but the presence of sin still remains. Right? The dominion of sin is broken, but you're not made instantly perfect. Our confession says, this sanctification is throughout in the whole man, yet imperfect in this life. There abideth still inside of us some remnants of corruption in every part, whence ariseth a continual and irreconcilable war, the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. The classic example that um, is given in, for this is World War II, when the, when the Allies landed on the beaches of Normandy and, uh, and broke through into Europe. Uh, it was really at that point that the war was over, right? It was, it was that, at that point that the tide had turned, but there was still all kinds of fighting that had to take place, right? There was, there was all this time between D-Day and V-Day, and for the Christian, we live in between D-Day and V-Day, right? There are all these skirmishes that still pop up. Even for years in French villages, there would be po uh, pockets of Germans who would be hiding, and, and, uh, and battles would would erupt, and so it is inside of the Christian, this continual and irreconcilable war. Um, the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 7, the very next chapter after the one that we read, where he said, you've died to sin, um, the, the old self, uh, you're no longer a slave to sin, but then he says this in Romans 7, he says, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Can you resonate with the Apostle Paul? I can, right? I, I, I don't do the things that I want to do and I do the things that I don't want to do. This war going on inside of me. Sanctification, growing as a Christian, is not one long triumphal victory march into glory. It is a daily bloody battle in the trenches of our souls. Sanctification is a war, and just like in physical war, some battles are won and some battles are lost as part of the larger conflict. If you look at the Civil War and you look at the battles of the Civil War, you'll actually notice that um, they're split about 50-50 between the Confederacy and the Union. But it is ultimately the Union, right, that, that won. Here's why this concept matters. If we don't understand that sanctification is a war, then we will communicate the wrong message about Christianity to others and to even ourselves. If sanctification is a war, 
then followers of Jesus should be known as those who are the most open and most honest about their sin. Listen, most people think that sanctification, growing as a Christian, means that you sin less and less. Most people think that growing as a Christian means that you sin less and less. But there's a problem with that equation. And the problem with that equation is it's too simplistic. Right? I'm not saying that growing as a Christian means that you sin more and more. The, the Apostle Paul in Romans 6 says, by no means, right? Um, but, but, but here's the reality. As you grow, you begin to see God's holiness more and more. And as you see God's holiness more and more, you begin to see what? Your sinfulness more and more. You begin to see how greater the gap is between you and the Lord. True saints, while practically they may sin less than they did when they were first converted, at the same time they see themselves as bigger sinners than when they were first converted. Becoming uh, those, uh, the more holy one becomes, the more unholy the person realizes he is. Does that make sense? Because, because we see that sin is so entrenched in every part of us, uh, not just in our actions, but in our motives and in our desires, right? not just in our speech, but in our thoughts, not just in our waking, but even in our sleeping. The Apostle Paul um, had self-reflective statements in the scriptures, uh, you know, as, as he was thinking about himself. And, and if you put three of those, if you take those and you put them in chronological order, um, look, look at what it shows us. First uh, Corinthians 15, around 56 AD, Paul says, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Do you know what we call that? I am the least of the apostles. Do you know what we call that? We call that a humble brag, right? I'm the least of the apostles, right? Okay, a couple years later, he says, this grace was given to me, the least of all the saints, to proclaim to the Gentiles the calculable riches of the Messiah. I'm the least of the apostles. As he's growing, I'm the least of all the saints. And then a couple years later, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I'm the worst of them. Do you see the Apostle Paul's progression through his life? As he was maturing in his Christian life, as he was becoming more sanctified, he saw himself as a worse and worse sinner. R.C. Sproul is maybe the greatest theologian of the last 50 years. Um, His influence millions of, of, of people. Um, he's, he's dead now, but he used to minister over in Orlando. And um, uh, just, I mean, just incredible mind uh, and theologian. Um, I was reading this week on the confession. He wrote a, a three-volume, 900-page uh, tome on the Westminster Confession of Faith. And uh, I am reading this section on sanctification right in the middle of it, and he says this. He says, one of the great sins of my life has been intellectual slothfulness, a failure to devote the training of my mind with singular devotion and passion to an understanding of the Word of God. 
right? If, if that's the great sin of his life, intellectual slothfulness, this great theologian. Um, John Newton, um, he, uh, he wrote, not when he was young and, and an immature believer, but when he was a seasoned pastor and well-respected and a mature Christian, he wrote this. He said, in defiance of my best judgment and best wishes, I find something within me which cherishes and cleaves to those evils, the evils from which I ought to start and flee as if, I should have, if a toad or a serpent was put in my food or in my bed. This evil is present with me. My heart is like a highway, like a city without walls or gates. Nothing so false, so frivolous, so absurd, so impossible, so horrid, but it can obtain access. And that at any time and any place, neither the study, the pulpit, or even the Lord's table exempt me from their intrusion. Do you grasp what he's saying? That even when I'm preaching a sermon, even when I'm at the Lord's table, in that moment, sin just grabs a hold of me. I can attest to that. When you understand that sanctification is a war, then you are not afraid to be increasingly honest about your sinfulness because all growth in grace is downward. When I first came to Seven Rivers, I learned a phrase that rocked my world and it still rocks me. And it's this, spiritually mature people are not those who sin the least. Spiritually mature people are those who repent the most. Spiritually mature people are not those who sin the least. Spiritually mature people are those who repent the most. So how would our community experience Seven Rivers Church differently if we were increasingly honest about our sinfulness? How would your family members experience you if you were increasingly honest about your sinfulness? How would your coworkers experience you if you were increasingly honest about your sinfulness? Because sanctification is a war. Second, sanctification is a process. Sanctification is a process. Or we might say, sanctification is a journey. And every journey has three components to it. You know this, every journey has three components. It has beginning, the middle, and an end, right? So, um, so I did something so that we could try to grasp this visually. So sanctification is a process, and every process has a beginning, and so um, when does the sanctification process begin? We've already said this. It begins when you're converted, right? When you become a Christian, when you're born again. So this represents the beginning of your sanctification process, when you first uh, became a Christian. And this rope then represents your life after your conversion, right? Following the Lord when you become a Christian. Some people um, are converted when they're children, right? And some people are converted uh, when they are in middle school or high school or college. Some people are converted uh, when they're young adults, like my mom was. She was pregnant with me when she became a follower of Jesus. Some people are converted uh, later in life, some people are converted in retirement. Some people are converted uh, in their very last days or hours. Um, but everyone starts this process the same way when they're converted, and everyone ends this process the same way. When does your sanctification process end? When you die, 
right? Sanctification process ends uh, at your death. And so this represents your death, right? At your death, you will be made perfect in the presence of the Lord. You will be fully sanctified like Christ. So here it is, right? Sanctification uh, is a process that starts with conversion, ends with dying, and going to be with the Lord. So here's my question for you. Where are you in this process? Where, where would you put yourself on this line? Where are you uh, in the sanctification process? And if you, if you think you know where you are in the process, how do you know that that's where you are? Philippians 3, the Apostle Paul, he writes this. He says, not that I've already obtained this, referring to the end, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. What is he saying? That mature followers of Jesus never think that they have arrived. Mature followers of Jesus always see themselves in process. The truth is that our view of where we are on this line is probably either overinflated or underinflated. Right? We would we would be humbled if God showed us where we really are. But what does Paul say? He says, I'm straining forward. If sanctification is a process, then what's important, what matters, is not the distance you've traveled or the place that you've reached, but the direction you're heading. It doesn't matter where you are, it matters which direction you're facing. You know, we're slowly uh, remodeling the sanctuary. We're starting, we're gonna remodel this whole building. We're starting with the children's wing, and we've been at that for some months now. And, uh, you know, it's messy. It's inconvenient. The progress is slow. Nothing looks complete. There's this beautiful end envisioned for it. Um, But we're still in the middle of getting there. And we're gonna be in the middle for a good time. If you go out the door right there and and head that way, you'll see uh, signs that say, please be patient with us, right? Please pardon our mess. Brothers and sisters, we are all in the middle of a sanctification process. And if we believe that, then we should have increasing patience for one another. I had a pastor who um, used to say, are you, willing to, are you willing to at least give others the same amount of time that God has given you? Are you willing to at least be as patient with others as God has been patient with you. Please pardon my mess should be just written over our lives, right? Be patient with me. God isn't finished with me yet. I'm still under construction. You know, what is Christian marriage? Christian marriage should be two sinners who are facing the same direction, who are both looking to the Lord, so that there's no time for one of them to look back to the other and say, what's wrong with you? Right, hurry up, right? 
both facing the same direction, uh, both in process, patient with one another. I love what Paul Tripp writes. He says, because we are people in process, our relationships are in process. Here's what I mean. Because we are less than perfect, but have the potential for significant change, our relationships will be less than perfect, but have the potential for change. And because personal change is not an event, but a process, change in our relationships will tend to be a process as well. Because God is understanding, patient, and sympathetic when we are weak and when we fail, we should be the same with one another. If God doesn't throw our need for growth in our faces, then we should never do that with one another. If God is unwilling to give up on us in the slow process of personal transformation, then we shouldn't give up on one another. If in the process of sanctification, God forgives us again and again, then we should do the same with one another. If when we fail, God picks us up again and again, offering us the grace of fresh starts and new beginnings, then we should do the same with one another. If in this long process, God's hope for us never wanes, then our hope for one another shouldn't fade either. See, we all began this sanctification process in the same way. We will all end this process in the same way. And we are all imperfectly in the middle. If we embrace that, then we will find ourselves becoming increasingly patient with our own journey and with the journey of others. Sanctification is a war. It's a process. And then third, it's work. Sanctification is work. So here's the question. Who does the work of sanctification? Do you do the work of sanctification, or does God do the work of sanctification? Is this a trick question? Well, okay, look at Philippians 2. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So who does the work of sanctification? Okay, so here's the deal. Ultimately, ultimately we are dependent on God's work, right? God's grace. Jesus said to his disciples, apart from me, you can do, do you remember? Apart from me, you can do a few things. No. Apart from me, you can do nothing, right? We are completely dependent on God. Without the work of God, nothing else matters. We can't earn our salvation and we can't earn our sanctification. We are completely dependent on God. And yet, however, God still calls us to work. Sanctification involves effort. Ephesians 2.10 says, we are his workmanship. That word is the Greek word poema. You're his poem that he's writing, right? You're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has created you to walk in good works. Working, walking, these things take effort. There is no excuse for negligence or slothfulness or carelessness in the Christian life. Some people in their social media will say, you know, let go and let God, right? Just let go and let God. Um, The truth is, people have been saying that for 400 years. 
um, because the writers of the confession address that. They say their ability, that is Christians' ability to do good works, is not at all of themselves, but wholly from the Spirit of Christ. We just said that. It depends completely on God. Um, and, and that they may be enabled thereunto, besides the graces they've already received, there is required an actual influence of the same Holy Spirit to work in them to will and to do of his good pleasure. It takes the Holy Spirit working in us in order for us to see any fruit in our lives. And yet, they say, and yet, we are not hereupon to grow negligent, as if we weren't bound to perform any duty unless upon a special motion of the Spirit, but we ought to be diligent in stirring up the grace of God that is in us. Those who grow as followers of Jesus grow because they learn to develop a spiritual work ethic. You know, there are practices that we call means of grace. They're of grace. They're founded on grace. They're in no way meritorious. When you do them, God doesn't love you more. When you don't do them, God doesn't love you less. And yet they are means, they are ways in which we grow in the process of sanctification. You might call them holy habits. And so what are these means of grace, these holy habits? Well, they're the word, sacraments, prayer, corporate worship. Um, You know, I've never had anyone say to me, Pastor, I haven't read my Bible for months and I feel closer to God than ever. You know, why does God say, gather together once a week, every, every, every seventh day to remember the Sabbath? Because you can only backslide so far in six days, right? We need the regular, we need the regular effort. Um, if you, so I had braces as a kid. As a kid. A lot of you had braces. Um, but now uh, they have this thing called Invisalign, right? So if you want to try to, if you want to, uh, straighten your teeth and shape them and form them into the perfect smile, then, uh, you know, they take a mold and they send it off and, and it's expensive and they send you all these, this the progression of, um, like, retainers that you're going to wear. And so what if you did that? What if you ordered those and then you, and you took them out of the box and you placed them on your shelf and you left them there? What would happen to your teeth? Nothing, right? Because you have to put them in your mouth in order for them to work. Um, means of grace. Um, They are the way that we fulfill what it says in Jude. Jude says, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Means of grace are the way that we keep ourselves in the love of God. Let me give you just one other practical discipline uh, that helps with this and your sanctification process. And um, along with, you know, being in Scripture and, and um, uh, being in worship and sacraments and those things, and is, uh, re- it's related to prayer, and it's cultivating a, a daily, ongoing dependence uh, on the Holy Spirit. We, we're Presbyterians, so we don't talk about the Holy Spirit much. We're kind of like afraid. Like if we do that, like it's going to get crazy in here, right? So, um, but, but, this, but in the sanctification process, this daily, regular, ongoing, 
conversation with the Holy Spirit and dependence on the Holy Spirit, right? So that when you wake up in the morning, the first thing you pray is, Holy Spirit, please help me today. Right? When you walk through the, the, the door of your workplace, you say, Holy Spirit, please help me to be a good employee. Please help me to be a witness for you today. When you walk into school, Holy Spirit, help me. When, when um, you're at Publix and you go into the uh, you know, express line and it says 10, 10 or less items, the person in front of you has 12 Holy Spirit, please help me be patient in this moment, right? Um, when, when your kids are just, you know, going nuts right after school because it's the witching hour and you just want to wring their necks, Holy Spirit, help me, help me. Um, uh, I, literally, I've had, I, this, this happens to me, I'll, I'll, be, um, I'll be praying for someone or someone will ask me to pray for someone else and, and so we're having the conversation about them, and, uh, and, and we go to pray for them. And like 30 seconds earlier, I knew their name, right? Maybe I've known it for a long time, and then all of a sudden we go to pray, and it's like blank, right? I'm like, oh, no, right? So I have a choice. I can, you know, I do the like, Lord, please bless this brother, right? <laughs> this sister, child of yours, um, uh, very often, uh, when I realize that that's happening, I'll just, Holy Spirit, please, please bring this name to mind. And it doesn't always happen, but it has happened. It happened this week. I was getting ready to go pray for something, and I was like, oh, I couldn't remember the name, and I prayed, and immediately that name came to mind. I don't know if that's just my mind, right, and my memory, um, but, it's, but what it is is it's cultivating an ongoing dependence uh, on the Holy Spirit. Um, who lives inside of you. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's, um, it's like uh, when, I, when I go to a new city and um, uh, I've never been there before and we're, we're, we're traveling around, what do I have to help me? I have this amazing thing called an iPhone and I can, uh, and I can pull up a map and it'll, it'll take me exactly to where I want to go. And if I don't know where to eat, I can pull up Yelp and find the best restaurant to go eat at. And I can, you know, so I, I have all of this help in this place where I have no idea how to navigate. Right in my back pocket, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you to help you navigate this life. Find your way through this process of sanctification. Ask Him. Sanctification takes work. God wants, to bear good, um, wants us to bear good works, fruit in our lives, by daily abiding with him. And here's the most amazing thing about our good works, right? Is that um, even though none of our good works merit salvation, even though they are tainted and defiled with all kinds of mixed motives and sinfulness, um, the confession says, notwithstanding the persons of believers being accepted through Christ, their good works are also accepted in him. Not as though they were in this life wholly unblameable and reprovable in God's sight, but that he looking upon them in his son is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. Isn't that beautiful? Because of our union with Christ, God accepts our imperfect, weak, good works. 
He's pleased with them because he's pleased with us and his son. Even in our working, even in our effort, we always come back to our union with Christ. Ultimately, to grow as a Christian, you don't focus on the means, you use the means to focus on Christ and his grace. You don't measure your spiritual health by how much you read or by how much you pray. You measure your spiritual health by how much of the gospel you're getting into your heart every day. D.A. Carson, he makes this point uh, kind of tongue-in-cheek. He says, I would like to buy about $3 worth of gospel, please. Not too much, just enough to make me happy, but not so much that I get addicted. I don't want so much gospel that I learn to really hate covetousness and lust. I certainly don't want so much that I start to love my enemies, cherish self-denial, and contemplate missionary service in some alien country. I want ecstasy, not repentance. I want transcendence, not transformation. I would like to be cherished by some nice, forgiving, broad-minded people, but I myself don't want to love those from different races, especially if they smell. I would like enough gospel to make my family secure and my children well-behaved, but not so much that I find my ambitions redirected or my giving too greatly enlarged. I would like about $3 worth of gospel, please. You see, the biggest hindrance to our spiritual growth is that we settle for too little gospel. Sanctification happens when we soak in the whole gospel. We drench ourselves in our union with Christ. We grow when we return again and again to the gospel promises. Then and only then will the work that God calls us to do be a delight instead of a burden. We will joyfully avail ourselves of every means of grace we can because that's what we were created for. Gospelized sanctification, the experience of fervent love that results in fervent obedience. So then finally, sanctification, the end. The end. By the end, I mean, what is the goal or the purpose of sanctification? What is the ultimate end? Well, look again at at Hebrews 12. Uh, in Romans 6, Hebrews 12 says, Strive for peace with everyone and strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Romans 6, says, Now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. What is the ultimate end of sanctification? The ultimate end of sanctification is eternal life in which you see the Lord. The ultimate end of sanctification is not your holiness. The ultimate end is what the holiness allows for, and that is spending eternity in the presence of God. The purpose, the goal of sanctification is relationship. God has you in this war. He has you on this journey. He puts you to work so that one day you will be ready to take in all that he has for you in himself. I wish you could have been with me this week when I um, uh, ran into a man who is getting to ready to have um, a uh, complete um, uh, uh, removal of his prostate. And... Um, uh, and in efforts, they're hoping to uh, get rid of the cancer. 
And, um, and I, I thought, you know, I ran to him like, oh, it's an opportunity to, you know, really minister to him, pray for him. And he ministered to me because he said, listen, I know where I'm going. I'm not at all concerned about this surgery. I've got Jesus, right? And I get to spend eternity with him. I wish you could have been there with me this week when I sat with a woman whose husband died a week ago. They were married for 64 years. And in the middle of talking about their life and his life, she just broke out into a hymn, praising the Lord for his faithfulness and goodness. I wish you could be with me in these moments so many times um, and listen to saints who've walked with the Lord a long time. They would be the first ones to tell you that they haven't arrived yet. But I know when I walk out of those meetings that they're ready. Because in their heart of hearts, Jesus is everything to them. They're the only thing that, it's the only thing that they want. You know, we could do a whole sermon on how maybe the greatest thing that God uses in our sanctification process is difficulty. And why is that? Because difficulties drive us into the arms of God, the only arms strong enough to carry us through this life. God doesn't just want your holiness. He wants you. That's why he created you. That's why he came and lived and died and rose for you. That's why he gave you the Holy Spirit, and that's why he's sanctifying you, because he wants you. I read this devotion um, this week, uh, and um, so I want to read it to you, and um, you know, just try to envision what uh, this person is saying. This, this devotion is called The Runner. He says, my wife is a runner. High school state champion, division one scholarship athlete, capital R runner. Until I met her, I firmly believed that running any distance over 40 yards was a form of cruel and unusual punishment. I am also not a morning person and certainly not a morning exercise person. In college, I was forced under threat of punishment by my football coaches to wake up at 5 a.m. and do CrossFit workouts before CrossFit was cool. Although I enjoyed the exercise and team camaraderie, I despise having to wake before the sun. Which is why my then girlfriend of one month was stunned when I informed her in November that I would be joining her in the half marathon she was preparing to run in February. I quickly discovered that my initial desire, wanting to earn her favor, would not work as a long-term motivator for getting myself out of bed at zero dark 30 in order to train. This motivation was no match for the temptation to hit snooze and remain in the comfort of my bed, spared from the pain and suffering from freezing weather outside. Moreover, unlike my earlier morning workout experiences, there was no threat of punishment forcing me to get out of bed. Instead, this time, the sustaining motivation would have to be love rather than fear. So every other morning from December through February, I got out of bed while the rest of my dorm roommates slept put on my toboggan, and eyes half-closed, walked slowly to the top of the hill. There, my future wife met me with a smile and a running plan for the morning. During those months, we ran long and far. I felt like a fish out of water. Literally, I could not breathe after two miles. 
but my patient and encouraging soon-to-be wife remained by my side. She prodded me along, despite my grumbling, complaining, and occasional stopping under the guise of needing a water break. She knew just how far to push me, setting just the right pace for each day. As we spent time together crossing the city that winter, my love for her grew and grew. I found myself actually looking forward to the runs because it meant I got to spend time with her. Simultaneously and miraculously, my lung capacity increased, my leg muscles adapted, and my stamina strengthened with each passing mile. By spending time with my future wife doing what she loved, I was being transformed. Make no mistake, the transition was not smooth. The running never became easy for me, but by the end of February, it was undeniable that I had been transformed. My relationship with my future wife had deepened, my love for her had increased, and now I had the leg muscles to prove it. Brothers and sisters, will you run with Jesus? Will you get up every morning and run with Jesus? you do that, do you know what you're going to find? Your love for him will grow more and more and more until one day you will see him face to face. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Seven Rivers, please visit our website at sevenrivers.org.